Chapter 12 The dining hall felt colder and smaller to her now that Finn had to tend to the meals alone. It was eerily quiet and devoid of the muttering and chuckling she'd always known it to hold. Every corner and doorway held a memory, and each time the floorboards creaked she turned, half expecting Bartimaeus to step out of the shadows and tell her it had all been a dream. She knew better, though, and reminded herself that although morning was well and good, there were people counting on her to have a meal ready. She tried to shake away the melancholy by fetching the beeswax to polish the table. It had more scuffs and pockmarks than sheen. She remembered when the finish was as clear as a mirror, many meals ago. Even the waxing didn't restore the shine like it used to. In some ways it made it more beautiful, it looked aged, but in other ways it just looked old and used. She did the best she could and headed back into the kitchen to start the meal. Biscuits and bacon were the course of the morning when the sisters came in at daybreak, she felt a dash of pride at the looks of surprise and approval they gave her. The children followed soon after, and within the hour, the meal had gone from pan to plate to belly, and not a crumb or gristle was spared. Finn felt the work and routine of the day begin to take hold and anchor her. It drew her back to shore from within the current of grief that threatened to drown her. Peter promised he would talk to Mr. Hickory about finding a plot of land for them. He didn't think the timing was right, but he was as anxious as she was to start a life of their own. Finn contented her mind with work, but she knew herself well enough to know that time would make monotony out of routine, and she'd end up clawing at the walls sooner or later. Peter knew it, too. At the end of the week, Peter came in with good news. Mr. Hickory had agreed to talk to Mr. Bolzius on their behalf. In the days that followed, Finn was almost happy. She put body and soul into her work, and no one heard any complaint from her lips. She petitioned Sister Carmeline in one permission to walk in the woods each day after lunch to forage for herbs and spices. This gave her a chance to visit Bartimaeus's grave, and with each visit she found more good memories to take comfort in, and felt less sting from the bad. She often took the fiddle along and played by the river, although she knew Hilda would forbid it, and each time she raised the lid, the sight of Betsy lying in the case made her wince. It brought back memories of Bartimaeus to her. Little things brought him back when she least expected him, spotting an herb in the wild, hearing a wisp of music on the wind, seeing a ship on the river and thinking of the sea. But she refused to touch the weapon. It was wholly evil to her. It was the instrument of Bartimaeus's fate, and she loathed the sight of it. At times she thought of removing it, of getting rid of it, but she feared seeing the empty imprint of it in the case would be worse. So there it lay, asleep and in wait. A few days later, Peter cantered up the road on horseback, trying his best to hide a smile. Finn knew the moment she saw him that he had news. There's something I want you to see, he said, and offered her his hand. She took it, and he hauled her up into the saddle behind him. Where are we going? Just hold on. He dug in his heels, and they galloped off down the road. Two miles outside of town, Peter turned off the road, and they made their way through a stand of trees and out into a broad clearing. Half the open space was plowed in rows, and the other half was fresh, wild grass. Peter pulled up the reins and jumped down, then helped Finn off. That's the edge of Mr. Hickory's property there, where the field ends, he said, pointing to the plowed rows. And this, he motioned at the uncut grass between the field and the trees, this is where ours begins. Finn's mouth fell open in a joyous gape. She stepped up on her toes and planted a kiss on Peter's cheek, then turned and ran, laughing through the field. Peter stood back and watched her. She was beautiful. Red hair wild, dancing in the green field, arms out, twirling, jumping, laughter like music. 
It was the first time she'd been so carefree since Bartimaeus had gone. She fell down and rolled in the grass, and Peter ran out to catch up with her. She was lying on her back, looking up at the sky. Ours, Finn, he said as he lay down beside her. Only two acres, but it's all ours. It's beautiful, Pete. She rolled to face him and propped herself up on her elbows. Her smile was wide and bright. I'll start building a house in my free time. I figure two months, three at most, and we can move in. Two months, said Finn. Her smile faded for a moment. We're almost there. They spent the rest of the daylight pacing off dimensions, pointing and planning the house and field. By the time they climbed back up onto the horse to ride home, Finn's cheeks ached from all her laughter and mirth. It felt like years since she'd been happy. When they got back to the orphanage, they announced their engagement to the sisters. Carmeline made a big show of hugging and kissing and blessing them, but Hilda had little to say. Finn expected as much. The next day, Carmeline cornered Finn in the dining hall and measured her from head to toe, stating her intent to make the wedding dress herself. She put her hands on her hips and explained in clear terms that she would hear no argument whatsoever about whether or not Finn intended to wear a dress at the wedding. She even claimed the Bible stated that women must wear dresses at weddings, though she was hard put to find the exact scripture. Finn hadn't actually given any thought to the wedding itself. Other girls might fancy big engagements and lacy dresses, but Finn was more concerned with the wedding night and her freedom thereafter. Sister Carmeline prattled on about decorations and banquets and a hundred other things that flew out of Finn's mind as soon as they'd flown out of Carmeline's mouth. Finn simply went about her business as usual and left the details up to those who cared. The two months that Peter expected it would take to build a house was an eternity of waiting for Finn. She kept herself busy with her duties in the kitchen, and each day when she finished, she'd run down the road and out to their plot of land. Often she'd find Peter there. He had started cutting timber immediately, and inside the first month had managed to frame out the makings of what Finn thought was the most beautiful sight in the world, their home. It was simple, only two rooms, a bedroom and a common room, and it would have a long porch down the front and east side. When she found Peter there, she helped him with the work, planing and jointing lumber, sawing logs, anything she found to do filled her with deep satisfaction. Other times when Peter wasn't there, she daydreamed, imagining what their lives would be like, children playing in the grass, crops at harvest, Peter coming in after a day's work and taking her in his arms. The frustration of the waiting was her constant companion, and she longed to be rid of it. Meanwhile, tension in the countryside was rising. Calls for independence filled the papers, and more and more people were taking sides on the issue. Finn, of course, was for independence, but many of the people in town clung to their old loyalties. It infuriated her. Most of the townsfolk had come from Germany, and why they would side with the English once they got here was beyond Finn's reckoning. British troops became a common fixture on the road between Bethany in the west to Savannah in the east and they posted official notice in town that citizens were to provide boarding for the king's men at need. Several times a week, the familiar sight of six or seven men in red coats came plodding through town, their eyes always full of suspicion. They terrified Finn. She never wanted to come face to face with another soldier as long as she lived. Sister Carmeline approached her one afternoon and asked how she liked her work in the kitchen. Finn answered with a shrug. She enjoyed it as much as one would expect. What would you think? Of staying on here as our cook, asked Carmeline. You'll be moving out of town soon, and that means we'll be out of a cook, and I, for one, am not anxious to see Hilda back in the kitchen. Finn shivered as she remembered the meals Hilda had cooked while she'd lain wounded in bed. But I'll have work to do of my own, said Finn. Oh, I know that, dear, but we'd compensate you. You'd be able to take food home for Peter and yourself, 
Keeping a home is hard work, and I'm offering you the chance to ease some of that by earning your way. I don't want to stay here forever, Sister Carmeline. I can't. Oh, I know, Finia, and I wouldn't expect you to stay forever, just until we, or you, can train up someone to take your place. Deli Martin is of an age now that I think she'll make a fine helper. Finn took a deep breath and agreed. The sisters deserved that much. Everything was falling into place. The house was nearly finished, and Sister Carmeline declared that the wedding date would be set for the Sunday following its completion. Finn was mad with anticipation. She swore the sun mocked her by stretching days out longer than they ought to be. Nights she barely slept and considered that the legions of chirping insects keeping her awake were possibly in collusion with the treacherous sun. She pestered Peter constantly about when the house was going to be done, but his deliberate nature demanded that every detail be perfect and nothing rushed. She wanted to choke him. In late autumn, Peter declared the end in sight, and Finn wasted no chance to run out and help him finish. Peter put her to work nailing down the floorboards of the porch while he sat in the shade of a water oak, carving table legs with a spokeshave. As Finn pounded in one nail after another, she smiled to herself, remembering how she had longed to work on the chapel with the other boys. All that seemed so far away and silly to her now, and yet here she was after all, hammering nails, building a house, and reveling in it. She entertained the brief thought that at last she had won out over Hilda's restrictions and constraints but she knew at once that the part of her that cared was gone. This would be her own home and she her own woman, and not for spite or pettiness, but for the love and life she wanted to share with Peter. She pounded in another nail and stood up. The porch was nearly done. Another few hours of work and she'd be finished, but a look at the sun told her she had already stayed longer than she ought have. Dinner time was sneaking up and she was needed back at the orphanage to prepare it. Peter, I have to go, she called to him. Peter put down his tools and walked to the house. He stepped onto the porch and stamped his foot on the board she'd just nailed down. Then he studied the whole of her work with his bottom lip pushed out in concentration. I suppose that'll do, he said. I guarantee it'll do better than you could have done. Finn playfully elbowed him in the ribs. "Mm Mm-hmm, Peter grinned. He reached out and pulled Finn to him. Finn dropped her few extra nails into her pocket and put her arms around his neck. How long, Peter? Just until Sunday. Finn marveled that three days could seem so far away. She stretched up on her toes and kissed his cheek. I've got to start dinner. I'll be back after and I'll bring you something. Oh, as long as it's not your stew. She pulled back and narrowed her eyes. If it is, you'll eat it and like it. Peter laughed. I suppose I might. I'll see you in a bit. Will you wait for me? I'll wait. I always do. Finn walked back to town, eager to be done with dinner. The day was chill, and she was glad when she stepped into the warmth of the dining hall. The sisters were about the business of the other orphans. Finn could hear Hilda in the distance berating someone for running in her presence, and it made her smile. She'd become efficient at the preparation of meals, and her hands began their work out of habit, leaving her mind free to wander. She found herself imagining nights alone by the fire with Peter, and children, and a life forever free of the orphanage. She'd almost finished cooking when she was startled out of her reverie, by the sound of harsh voices in the courtyard. Finn peeked out the window and saw a detail of six soldiers milling about and calling for whomever might be in charge. Sister Carmeline wobbled out of her chambers and hurried to meet them. The man giving orders had a scar running across his face from temple to temple. The scar passed over both eyes. One was pale and blind. The other glared around, wide open, its lid removed by the knife that scarred him. 
Periodically, he scrunched up his cheek in order to close the eye in a lidless blink. Finn knew at once who he was. It was the man Bartimaeus had cut, the man who fled into the woods, the one who had put his hands on her. Finn listened at the window, trying to hear what was going on. She couldn't make out words, just broken sounds. Carmeline spoke to the scarred soldier, and she didn't look pleased with what he told her. Then Carmeline turned and caught up her skirts in her hands and huffed toward the dining hall. Finn rushed to the door to meet her. Finia, the soldiers demand we grant them room and board. How soon can you feed them? asked Carmeline, her face flushed with anger. Finn balked. Sister Carmeline, we can't. That man, he's... He's prepared to take what he wants by force and burn our home if we don't accommodate him. Do as I say, child. Finn's mouth worked for words. She couldn't believe what was happening. Carmeline hurried out the door and waved for the soldiers to follow her into the dining hall. Finn ran into the kitchen to escape notice. She listened in horror as the door opened and boots clomped in. She heard the clatter of muskets being propped against the wall. Chairs scraped the floor and men's voices filled the room. I'm starving, said a voice from the table. The food will be ready soon, said Carmeline before she hurried into the kitchen. Finn was backed up against the wall. She looked at Carmeline and shook her head back and forth. She couldn't go out there. He'd see her. He'd remember. She couldn't. Finia, hurry up! These men are hungry and we've no reason to make them more so, said Carmeline. I'm going to fetch Sister Hilda from the chapel and prepare beds. Get the food on the table and everything will be fine. Without looking at Finn again, Sister Carmeline hurried out. Finn was alone with them, with him. From the other room, she heard their voices grumbling and fussing at each other. Get on with the bloody meal, one called out. Finn had to move, had to act. She tried to shake off her fear and called back. Almost ready, just a bit longer. She gathered her wits and went to check the stew. It was ready. She hurried to the oven and removed the loaves of bread. The voices in the other room were restless and growing angry. She looked around for bowls and her eyes fell on the fiddle case. Betsy was in there. She should load Betsy just in case he recognized her. At least she'd be ready this time. She plucked the case from under the cupboard and placed it on the tabletop. She lifted the lid and Betsy stared up at her. The engravings on the barrel seemed to smile. Finn reached out, slowly, hesitant to touch it. She knew how to load a musket, knew how to shoot one, but she'd never shot a blunderbuss. And they didn't call them hand cannons for nothing. The barrel was over an inch in diameter and it wasn't made to load with a single ball like a musket. It was made to scattershot anything that was packed into it. Rocks, metal, salt, anything you could find. She looked around for something to load it with. She ran to the shelves where the spices were kept and shook the tins and bottles, looking for something hard enough to be dangerous. What's going on in there? called a voice from the other room. Just finishing up, she called back. She couldn't find anything. Then she put her hand in her pocket and brought out a handful of nails. She picked up Betsy, dumped the powder from the horn into the barrel, dropped in the nails, then tore off a piece of her shirt and stuffed it in as wadding. She pulled out the rod and packed the barrel. It was done. She lay Betsy down in her case, closed her eyes, and tried to slow her breathing. Where's the bloody food? called an angry voice. Coming, shouted Finn. There was nothing left to stall over. She was going to have to go out there. She closed the fiddle case. Well, looky here, said the sharp, cruel voice from the doorway. It was him. It was him, and there was no mistaking the recognition in his eye. He scrunched up his face to blink and then came into the room. Finn couldn't move. He was grinning. The sounds and smells of that night came back to her in terrifying flashes. 
the smell of his companion burning on the fire, his sharp cry as Bartimaeus's blade scarred him. What's going on in there? called a voice from the other room. Quiet, shouted the scarred soldier without taking his eye off of her. The eye winked at her again and looked her up and down. His smile widened. Unfinished business we've got, eh? he said, almost a whisper. Finn backed up against the table. He advanced. Two quick steps and he had her throat in his hand, squeezing it until she could barely breathe. What's wrong, lass? he said, his voice low and cruel. No sport left, now that your old man ain't around to blind me other eye. He heaved his words out on billows of rotten breath. Spittle flew from his lips. Finn closed her eyes. It was happening again. Make a sound, and those men will arrest you, and everyone else in this traitor's nest of a town. Her hand searched the tabletop for Betsy. The case was to her left. She reached out her hand, but she was too far away. She couldn't reach it. Then her right hand fell on something long and cold, a kitchen knife. She found the handle and thrust the knife into his chest. His good eye bulged and rolled madly. His mouth opened and closed, gasped for air. He fell forward onto her as she suppressed a cry and he slid to the ground. She dropped the knife and it clattered to the floor. The soldier rolled onto his back and clawed at his chest, working for air. She heard a sickening wheeze from the wound. Hellish, liquid sounds escaped his mouth. Sergeant, called a voice from the dining hall. They'd be coming through that door any second. Finn threw open the fiddle case and grabbed Betsy. There was no turning back now. She would not hang like Bartimaeus. She hurried to the door and peeked out. The soldiers had all set their muskets against the wall next to the front door, at least ten feet from the nearest man and fifteen feet from her. Five soldiers, one shot from Betsy, one shot each from six muskets. If she could get to them in time, if they were even loaded. It was madness. She stood at the doorway while her mind raced to think of any other option. But there was no time. The scrape of a chair on the floor and the clomping of boots coming toward the kitchen made the choice for her. A shadow fell in the doorway. A man was coming. She took a long breath and stepped out into the dining hall. The approaching man stopped in his tracks. Confusion spread across his face. Finn stood in front of him and slowly raised Betsy. What the? The soldier took a step back and Finn pulled the trigger. Betsy exploded into the dining room. The red coat in front of her collapsed instantly. Two more at the table fell back screaming, one with a hole in his neck, the other bleeding from his chest. Finn threw Betsy aside and ran for the door, one dead already, three dying. One of the two soldiers at the table snapped out of his shock and realized Finn was headed for the muskets. He raced her for the door. Finn got there first, picked up a musket, and thrust the bayonet into the man's belly. He opened his mouth in a silent, agonized plea. She pulled the trigger and the musket blew him back onto the table. She threw down the weapon and picked up the next one. The last soldier was still sitting at the table with a look of horror and surprise on his face. He was no older than Peter. She leveled the musket at him. No! He said it softly and put his hands in the air. Finn was lost. She pulled the trigger. One of the wounded men groaned and spat blood onto the floor in front of her. Shouts were coming from the courtyard. She could barely see through the smoke in the room, and the acrid tang of gunpowder was sweet in her nostrils. The man on the floor cried for help. Finn picked up another musket and put it to her shoulder. The wounded man pulled himself up and braced himself on the table with one hand. With his other hand, he drew a knife from his belt and pointed it at her. He twisted his face into a hateful snarl. Finn pulled the trigger. The door opened behind her and she turned. 
Sister Carmeline stood in the doorway, peering into the smoke-filled room. Finn emerged from the haze like a ghost. Her face blank, her hands and clothes splashed red. Sister Carmeline looked at her in horror, then her eyes fell to the floor and she saw the dead. She rushed in to examine them. Sister Hilda ran into the room and looked around. What have you done? shouted Hilda. What have you done? Outside in the courtyard, the younger children were crying. Several of the older boys were running up to the dining hall to get a look at what had happened. Sister Hilda turned and herded the children away. Finn walked across the dining hall and picked up Betsy. Carmeline looked up from one of the dead men. Are you hurt, Finia? Didn't answer. She went into the kitchen and put Betsy away. She latched the case, picked it up, and walked to the door. Finia, where are you going? said Carmeline. Finn stopped. They'll come for me, like they did for Bartimaeus, she said. I'm leaving. She walked out the door. In the courtyard, the children stared at her open-mouthed. Finn walked past them and through the gate. People were coming out of houses all down the street and edging their way toward the orphanage, trying to see what the gunshots had been about. Some stared at Finn in her blood-spattered clothes. Others rushed past her. Mr. Hickory came out of his house as she passed. Are you hurt, Miss Button? he called out. She didn't answer and kept walking. Peter was waiting. Mr. Hickory stared after her, then turned and jogged down the road toward the orphanage. What have you done? Sister Hilda's words. Her life was ruined. She couldn't marry Peter. She couldn't live with him on a farm outside of town. Not now. Not anymore. She had just murdered six men. Six British soldiers. If she didn't leave, they would come for her. If she hid, they'd tear the town apart to find her. This is what Bartimaeus felt. And he chose to stay. Finn couldn't do that. Wouldn't do that. This is what it's like to be truly alone, she thought. To be empty of hope, cut off, lost, with no road home. This is what it feels like to be abandoned by God. All the devils in hell between. Finn reached the spot where the road turned off toward a green field surrounding a freshly built house and a nearly finished porch, and she stopped. Peter was down there. He was waiting for her. But how could she explain it to him? What could she say? She couldn't bear to see him, to see the look on his face when she told him she had to leave. She didn't want to see that beautiful green field that until an hour ago nurtured the seeds of her future and dreams. She wanted to forget that she'd ever been happy. She wanted to forget that Peter loved her. She wanted to forget that she'd ever stood in her bell tower and seen the trees stretching across the world to the horizon. And she wanted to forget that she'd ever longed to go out and see what lay beyond it. She was alone and empty, and so she ran. She turned east and fled into the vast Georgia wild. <laughs>